Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. There is apparently a scene in the third act of that movie where Jeff Bridges and John Huston fight in front of a gigantic American flag like it's a Frank Miller comic. All right, this seems like a dangerous rabbit hole to get into. Is everyone fairly ready to record now? Yeah, I'm uh, ready to go whenever you guys are. All right, it's a convenient time because it's 10.01, so we can just uh, use that as our timer. Anyways, welcome everyone to Box Office Pulp the only podcast guaranteed to give you a hum in the drum. I'm your getaway driver, Cody Elft, and joining me today for a baby driver special are my co-hosts and partners in crime, Mike Napier and James Lewis. Also, I squealed on the road, not to the cops. Ah, they did their own commentary. Also, playing the role of Joseph tonight is our good friend MB. MB, say hello. Wonderful. Anyways, how about that Edgar Wright fellow? Ah, uh, I think he's tops. He's swell, I say. The bee's knees. And then we end the commentary and I'll go home. <laughs> uh, we just paste in our uh, World's End commentary and then at the very end say, and Baby Driver was good too. And I really enjoy all his movies. Which is a serious comment. I, I think that's actually a great point to jump on. Edgar Wright has the most sterling track record of any director out there, I want to say. True, he doesn't have a hundred movies to his name, but each one he has done has been fascinating wonderful and rewatchable to the highest degree like when baby driver comes out it's going to be one of those movies i watch probably you know once every other month that's what i love about edgar wright he is the only person out there where every time he has a movie coming out it is a bona fide event like even del toro doesn't quite have that like he's the only one working in hollywood where if an Edgar Wright movie is coming out, that's going to be your favorite movie of that year. <laughs> Although, in, in Del, uh, GDT's defense, people were really digging the Shape of Water uh, trailer, which surprised me. Oh, that me. looks marvelous. Oh, no, 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 so shade on, no shade on Del Toro. <laughs> that's right, you apologize, you whelp. <laughs> did we start the episode? We did. Have you cut out, Mike? I was gone. <laughs> so good job, guys. Uh, I'm glad I got to join this in progress. All right. Uh, Sorry. How did you get... Oh, yeah. I thought you were awfully quiet. Mike, what did you think of Baby Driver? Oh, am I allowed to talk now? It's your turn. We have a two-minute head start on you, so you get to catch up. Oh, well, no, it's okay. I get to listen to all this in editing. It'll be fresh for me. It's like I get to listen to my own private episode of Box Office Pulp. You'd be proud of us. We had a very, very, very professional opening. You have a professional opening for once, and you don't even and you didn't see if everyone who's on the podcast was even there before doing the professional opening. Uh, James can back me up. I asked, "Is everyone ready this time?" And James went, "I'm ready." And then I went, "That's everyone." And then we just started. <laughs> really, we're both bastards when you think of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome to Box Office Pulp, everybody. <laughs> I'd like to put in my two cents and say, "Baby Driver was great." <laughs> Wonderful, and now we can all go home. <laughs> I'll catch up. So, in case uh, our listeners are also just joining us... <laughs> Somebody was talking shit about Guillermo del Toro? No, 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 no. Oh, man, we should really start this over. People are just going to be like, this is so redundant, I just heard this. 
what we were talking about is Edgar Wright has the most sterling track record out there. As much as we love Del Toro, every time a Wright movie comes out, you know it's going to be about your favorite movie of the year. Oh, yeah. He's an event director, and there aren't many more of those around. He's, he's almost like a callback to, and maybe getting a bit film snob here, he's a callback to the auteur directors of the 70s who just made iconic movie after iconic movie in direct sequence. What I, what I really like here, too, is it allows him to make a very large break from something like the Cornetto trilogy. He doesn't have a large filmography, but it'd be pretty easy for people just to assume he's only going to give us the same kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and Scott Pilgrim shows he can definitely do a different style of comedy. This one was funny, but I wouldn't call it a straight comedy. This is, this is an action film, a real action film that happens to have great character moments and levity in it. It has comedic energy. It's not a silly yes. comedy. It's, it's cut in the way kind of like a comedy is. It's got that nice zip to it. That's the thing that blows me away the most about Baby Driver. It's just how different yet similar in really specific ways it is to the rest of Wright's filmography. All of Wright's films to a certain point are send-ups to a certain in a certain way, even Scott Pilgrim. Baby Driver is just a legitimate entry and response to the heist genre. But at the same time, all of that, all the same tools he used for the send-up movies are still present in Baby Driver. I can't remember who said it, but I was, I was reading a review where they basically mentioned the fact that to do a proper send-up of a film, you have to understand the genre behind it and the rules it's playing by. Because if you don't understand the cliches and the tropes, what are you making fun of? You're just throwing jokes out there and hoping they land. And it doesn't work when you're doing a parody. Edgar Wright fucking nails all this stuff because he understands and loves the material the same way movie fan, all other movie fans do. And it, it works so well for Baby Driver because he's able to just step on the other side of that line and say, well, if I already know all the rules, why can't I just play with them and do it straight? It's It's hilarious watching this movie go from 70s cool guy movie to Edgar Wright comedy at random drops of that. <laughs> like, you could have really intense sequences, like the, the entire third act of this film, and then you can have people like cats. <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of interested visually in Baby Driver. Because I look at Scott Pilgrim and I can go, okay, that's the director of Hot Fuzz. Like, it looks very, it's very different in every way from the Cornetto trilogy. But I can look at that and go, okay, that's, but that's the same hand guiding the camera. Baby Driver has very Edgar Wright sequences and looks about it. But he's actually used, like, those familiar beats, he's using his own visual language in a new way. And then the rest looks so completely different from anything he's done previously. Even just set design. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One thing that really caught my attention during the first watch-through was how much this feels like it respects the place it's in, or reflects the place it's in. Uh, with, with the Cornetto trilogy, it, they're very British. As someone who's American and has never been to Europe, I only can assume this is what his version of England is like. Uh <laughs> Same with Scott Pilgrim. It presents a very Canadian world, or at least my understanding of what Canada is. It's got that feel of it, uh, the movie feel of a place. And when you get to Baby Driver, it feels very much like the movie version of Atlanta, 
which is great. It really reflects its setting. And it doesn't feel like Edgar Wright just picked up all of his toys and dropped them in a new location and ignored the fact he was in a different room. Uh, I've spent a little bit of time in Atlanta, and what fascinated me is how Edgar Wright's Atlanta is like other directors' version of Manhattan, where it's authentically Atlanta, but it's a slightly heightened movie Atlanta. And you don't really see that very often for locations like that. Like that it's usually just New York and LA that gets that kind of slightly romanticized uh, look. Yeah. I think that's a great way to think of it, romanticized, which is odd because most people, when they cover Atlanta, I think they're just doing it because Atlanta's easy to film in. Like Marvel movies film there because it's cheap. You get the feeling Edgar Wright filmed there because it was important to him to have a movie set in Atlanta. <laughs> Added bonus, we get Killer Mike in all of this too, so bonus. <laughs> <laughs> there's something, um, there's a talent Wright has that's very unique, uh, I found, with all of his films, where I, I don't know how he manages to pull this off, but in a location that's in his movie for five seconds, like one scene, for some reason he's able to treat like that one street or alleyway or, or whatever as if it's one of those old Hitchcock movies that take place in that one location and nothing else. Like, I don't know how he's Edgar able Wright to presents paint. rope. God, if only. Um, like, I don't know how Wright managed to always paint locations that characters are just passing through, as if they're somehow iconic characters in the movie themselves. Like, every time even Baby's just, when he's running, every new location he hits while he's running has personality to it, in 10 seconds. That's a great point. I didn't really think about it until now, but it's the settings of the movies really stand out to me. The elevator in Baby's apartment, yeah. that gigantic elevator like that, for some reason stands out, even though you only see it, mostly because Kevin Spacey points it out, but it's not there for a long time. Uh, the diner, you spend a lot of time there, so you feel pretty familiar with it. It's not just a generic diner, even though it is. The parking garage? The parking garage. The parking garage, for sure. Um, yeah, the planning rooms. Although that's probably just the addition of small matchbox cars. That does help. <laughs> they spruce up any location. Yeah, it don't make it so fun. Well, there's been kind the of a... post office, even. The post office. He made, managed to make a post office interesting. <laughs> well, there's been kind of a problem with modern movie making where it often feels like characters aren't anywhere whenever they're, they're, we're seeing them, like... We really don't get to know locations anymore, especially in really fast-paced movies. There's just a lot of exteriors and talking heads. But, and this is true of, like, all Wright's films, every new scene treats its location like it's a level of a video game. Go on. Well, like Mike was saying, like, every location, no matter how short a time you spend in it, feels fully fleshed out. It's like, Okay, this is the diner part of the movie. This is the apartment part of the movie. And and there's a lot of... Uh, and the visual language is always specific to that scene. Like, the camera moves a certain way in Baby's apartment. The camera moves a certain way whenever they're planning heists. Like, it makes it feel like, by the end of the movie, you've been through a world. Despite the fact that it's just Atlanta. <laughs> Atlanta is the world. There's nothing else but Atlanta. We're all in Atlanta. Oh my god, Donald Glover controls everything. Well, yeah. Can we just steal that episode of Futurama, the uh, the song about Atlanta? 
<laughs> it's just a parody of Atlantis, as by Donovan. That's how I want the episode to go out, and then all of us be sued and sent out in the road. We're always down the road of being sued. <laughs> Especially by ahead. Matt Groening. <laughs> we love you, Matt. Don't do it. It stinks. Uh, <laughs> I don't think... <laughs> a cold cut. A cold cut. <laughs> From the back I'm of the freezer. <laughs> Boy, I bet people didn't expect this when they tuned in for Baby Driver. Baby Driver, everybody. From the seller of Animation Past. Now, I don't think any discussion of Baby Driver can linger on this long without immediately going into the goddamn use of music in this movie. What a magic trick that was. Just for the fact that he manages to pick such a variety of music and none of the really obvious choices. There's a lot of nostalgia in soundtrack choices where... You feel like, oh, yeah, of course they would use that. They would use this. Even something I love, like Guardians of the Galaxy, it's not surprising when you hear songs you recognize, like, oh, yep, there's David Bowie. Makes sense. This one, like, man, I loved all the music, and most of it going through, I'm like, I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't know that. He opened a movie with bell bottoms. (laughs) (laughs) He went deep cut with it. There's Yeah, there's a lot of surprising stuff in here. Even the big name stuff, like they have Beach Boys, but it's not necessarily the Beach Boys that you would recognize. Uh, there's T-Rex, but again, Deborah, like I didn't even know that was one of theirs. Uh, they do have some Run the Jewels in there. I'm a big Run the Jewels fan, so <laughs> that instantly stood out, but that was just really exciting. I wish that was like half the movie. That's the sequel. I was, Oh, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Oh, it's just him driving Run the Jewels across the country. <laughs> That's the sequel. Baby Driver, Jewel Runner. I, I could actually see that. Uh, but I love how right uses music visually as well and not just the way he moves the camera and and what he's able to do with it just weird subtle edgar wright isms he throws in there just lyrics written on a wall as he passes by as the lyrics are being said people in you know dressed a certain way that are like in the background that are relating to the song that happens to be playing that you could very easily miss but wright's insane so of course that stuff's going to be in there I can't wait to watch this over and over and over again and still catch things I missed the eighth time. <laughs> I think the big Easter egg I caught and felt proud about was uh, um, they show the music video for, what is it, Mint Royale? Uh, the one that Edgar Wright directed years ago, that's basically the dry run for this movie where a guy yeah. is just playing along with the song in his car. You see that music video for just a second. He's like, ah, I caught that reference. I swear to God, I thought you were going to say, I was really proud that I noticed Pierce Brosnan. (laughs) Oh, was that Pierce Brosnan? That was Pierce Brosnan. That was totally Pierce Brosnan. He goes by so fast. As I assume his character from The World's End. (laughs) Just monitoring Atlanta. Mm, No, they're not ready. This is a prequel, yeah. (laughs) Uh, One thing normally Wright also includes like a ton of foreshadowing in his films. I'm not sure if this one counts. But one of my friends saw the movie, and he, he said he loved how John Berthold character mentions, if you don't see me again, I'm dead. I... So in his mind, that character died, and that's why we never saw him again. And I'm really hoping it's wrong and we get him in the sequel. I am obsessed with that, because what I love is that is like the ultimate Edgar Wright joke. Because it's one you don't realize until after you've watched the movie and you're thinking back, and went, hey, wait a minute, John Berthold was in that movie for five seconds. Hey, wait, he said this. Wait a minute. He's fantastic. He, like, steals a scene, too. Edgar Wright made a joke about a celebrity cameo. 
I'm really hoping it's actually a giant treasure chest or a treasure map. And the next time we watch Shaun of the Dead, we're going to realize John Berthold played a zombie in the background for <laughs> one second. <laughs> and then it'll be like, oh my God, it all clicks. I do like to think that that was just an elaborate Walking Dead reference. <laughs> like it, God, I, I just want a director to do that joke, but with Sean Bean. <laughs> I just walks out of a room. I certainly hope nothing bad happens to me. <laughs> and then you never see him again. Just pick any Sean Bean movie. It's <laughs> a direct sequel. Golden Eye. He, he immediately leaves Baby Driver for Golden Eye. Uh, he just walks out of an apartment and falls through a time-space portal into Middle-Earth. Oh! I would have gone with Black Death. Like, just picks up a sword, <laughs> decides to go get into this shit ripped out of him by uh, witches. Oh no, that's what happens to Boromir after he stops playing dead, so Aragorn will leave and runs out of those woods. <laughs> <laughs> he was not going to Mordor. Go back to Earthfall for a minute. What also amuses me about that is, is once again, this is a very right thing where Bernthal's kind of set up a certain way, then says that joke, if you don't see me again, I'm dead, leaves the movie, which we don't see him again, so that means he's dead. And he's also... I wonder if there's, like, a background joke somewhere, like, on the TV, like, it's in, you know, man shot outside Delhi, or something along those lines we'll find in a rewatch. I, I, John I'm Bernthal sure killed outside Taco Bell. <laughs> the actor. <laughs> but I love how he's then replaced with Bats, who has literally the same exact character set up as Bernthal's character. It's like he was recast at the last <laughs> Like he's in like a trauma a, film. It's a really subtle, weird thing. I don't really know why it's done like that, but it's pretty fucking genius. I do Not, love the misdirects with villains in this film because John Berthold first seems like he's going to be the adversary that's going to cause yeah. things to break. And then he leaves and Kevin Spacey's like, I always work with a new crew. And he's just gone. He, then you kind of think, well, maybe it's Kevin Spacey because he's basically blackmailing baby. But at the end, he turns out to be a good guy. It, well, good enough. Uh, there's he knows a twist love when he sees it. At one time, uh, John Ham's complete heel turn. That was brilliant. You start off kind of thinking, "Oh, John Ham's nice to baby. He's not so bad." It'd be like in a movie if they show the villain being very nice to a dog, like feeding it stuff. So you're like, oh, "He's not a bad guy." And then at the end of the movie, he opens his door, and it's, his house is just lined with mounted cat heads. <laughs> like, what, what is this? this villain you've created? He was, what a he was weird turn you've taken. Exactly, that's what the movie did. And I loved also, it. Like, you start off thinking, oh, John Hamm, he's actually not that evil. And then by the end, you're like, oh, God, what a bastard. He tried to take baby's hearing. I love, that's what I love about this movie. By the halfway point, you have no idea what the fuck the third act of this movie is going to be. Yeah. <laughs> it goes off the rails so quickly. Also, we cannot talk about cameos without briefly bringing up Flea in the most <laughs> Flea performance he has ever fleed. Flea, ass, flea. <laughs> you mean no-nos? <laughs> I hope Wright does get to make a sequel, and it's all the, it's like a prequel that shows the backstory of no-nos and how he lost his nose and became no-nos. <laughs> no-nos rising. But yeah, this movie has a way of pulling the rug out from under you so many times. Like The moment of baby killing bats is one of the most shocking things I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, yeah. It, it was so fun being in a theater and watching everyone go, ah! But it's it's brilliant because it's a clear break for the character. Like, he realizes, yeah, if I work with criminals and I help criminals, that makes me an accomplice. I'm a criminal. And he doesn't want that anymore, and he breaks free at that point. That's the total heel turn of the movie. 
he can't go back from that choice, which is fantastic because it sets you on a totally new path and it makes it feel exciting and new again. Plus, oh god, no one really expected, I think, uh, <laughs> that Pike to go right through him. That was so well-established, secretly. When characters die, too, in this movie, it's always a, a treat because it feels a little predictable, but not enough where you're rolling your eyes like, yeah, hurry up. Like, Kevin Spacey, when he's shot, you're kind of rolling your eyes like, yeah, no, we all knew that was going to happen. But then when he shoots the guy and gets run over. <laughs> <laughs> Thrown into that the light. twist. Just the last words of, oh, fuck. And <laughs> it happens so fast, you're like, did he actually get run over and murdered? Or is he going to come back with a shotgun and save the day? Did Edgar no, Wright kill Kevin Spacey? Very dead. He knew love once. God, God, that's... I love... Like we said in the World's End commentary, that one of the great things about Edgar Wright is his obsession with giving every single character a character arc. And I love how that's in full swing with this movie like kevin spacey just has a world he inhabits completely <laughs> independent of baby like you could just do a doc spinoff i'd be there because there's so much going on with that character secretly with his crime nephew the greatest one scene <laughs> character <laughs> and just uh, well honestly the way he has all the characters interlocking the casting it all works so well. The chemistry between Ansel and Elgort. Am I saying that stupid? Elgort? That's unfortunately Elgort. his name. Sorry, I'm Ansel. sure he's very, he's very sad about that. <laughs> Anyways, the chemistry between Baby and... I'm just going to use character names now because I don't want to screw up anyone's real name and feel like a moron. Uh, the chemistry between Baby and Deborah. Just it works so well, even though they only have a scene or two to really set up that romance. They sell it. It's it's like a musical in my mind because even though they're rushing through a lot of the, the romance parts where they have to sell the idea she would go to the ends of the earth with them, it works. It's got that fairy tale musical logic where it just plays right and you believe these characters would totally do the things they're doing. Even though they've only known each other for a couple of days and he's a criminal and lied to her about it, she will wait for five years for him to get out of prison so they can be together. Yeah, exactly. What, I love how movie that relationship is. I don't mean that in, like, the derogatory movie-type way. I mean that in, like, the beautiful movie-type way. Yes. Like, I love how that's, like, pulled off. And Wright doesn't try to... Like, he knows the exact kind of idea and trope he's going for with it. And doesn't... Have, I like how he didn't pull back and, like, try to do something else with it and just let that be a movie thing. You have no idea how happy I was during that first interaction between Baby and Deborah, where they're talking about uh, people who, whose names are in songs, and I was just grinning ear to ear and quietly giggling to myself the entire time because it feels like it's been a very long time since I've seen two characters in a movie meet together and have movie-getting-to-know-you dialogue. Yeah. Like, oh, my, oh my god, they're not ad-libbing and mumbling over each other and making weird jokes that only make sense to the actors on set. They're having movie dialogue. I miss movie meet-cutes. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's not the standard relationship now where they just hate each other for a while and then for some reason she has to love him at the end. Yeah. That's so nice. Having characters that actually are written to appreciate each other from the start is pretty nice. And Lily James, she does so much with such 
relatively little screen time compared to the other actors. Like, she just radiates charm from her first appearance. (laughs) And good lord, can we talk about, like, speaking of star-making performances, Ansel Elgort as Baby, the most fascinating (laughs) goddamn performance I've seen in a while. It would would be so easy to make that character just a, a blank stand in for the audience like so many action movies do that you just get someone kind of generic and they stand there and you're supposed to be like yeah that generic tough guy i could be that generic tough guy but he's not he's totally different it's an action film with a guy who looks way too young to be the action guy he's a little meek but still has surprisingly good moves just the way he dances around his apartment with his foster father it's it's all charming it's so charming i don't i don't know how he pulls off the amount that he pulls off at one time, like, how are you, like, the 70s cool, like, Steve McQueen action guy? Also, you're very vulnerable. Also, you're kind of a dork. Also, you're very meek. Also, you're, you're, like, I don't understand how he does, like, so much within one scene, flipping and I, back and forth. And I'm so impressed by Elgort's ability to... Do a 70s Steve McQueen tough guy performance without it ever feel like it's an impersonation or a callback. It's as if El Gort is just one of those dudes and they pulled him out of a time machine. <laughs> it, it almost infuriates you. It's like, wait, wait, this dude was doing Divergent before this. What a waste. It's funny. Yesterday I was uh, reading an interview with El Gore where he's pretty much asked that question. It's like, so how does it feel doing an Edgar Wright movie uh, after The Fault in Our Stars and Allegiant? And he does the actor thing. It's like, oh, oh th- th- those movies were a great time. I, I really enjoyed the people I made them with and great scripts. I, I really liked being able to cut my teeth on those. But yeah, it was really nice making a real movie for once. <laughs> Those were his exact words. It was really nice making a real movie for once. Yeah. <laughs> oh, snap. Baby grew up. And God, the character of Baby himself is such a frigging creation in this movie. Like, I told Mike immediately, leaving the theater, like, I think I have my first cinematic man crush. <laughs> Like, I want Baby to pick me up in that car and just drive me anywhere. <laughs> All the small details in the character, too. The way he decorates each iPod for a different day of the week. <laughs> so brilliant. <laughs> and he has his pink glitter iPod for pink glitter days. He's got that much music. you got to separate. It makes perfect sense to me. Although, I think, like, I would probably mix and match mine a little bit more. It would suck. You'd have to have like five iPods on you at all time because it'd be like, oh shit, I need a tough action song now, and then I need a Gwen Stefani song. I need some No Doubt right now, but I have to switch out later. Right I would need 30 iPods. Not that I think this, I'd be made of iPods. I would just be shuffling down the street <laughs> made of iPod minis. Clip to my why, body. Does every, why does everything become a horrible superhero? <laughs> <laughs> oh, everyone run from the iPod, man! <laughs> <laughs> But I'm 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 absolutely fascinated with the way, like as you were saying, Mike, they play with baby's masculinity and vulnerability. Like uh, Priscilla Page wrote an amazing article on Badass Digest uh, a while back, just analyzing that and how baby works as almost a subversion of the 
you know, Steve McQueen badass criminal trope. Baby is somebody who is perfectly aware that he's in this world and is very attracted to the more palatable affectations of it, but also doesn't fall into any of the pitfalls that doom virtually every other getaway driver in these movies. Baby isn't afraid to be vulnerable. He isn't afraid to be feminine. Like his entire thing is spending his free time in the diner where his mother worked because that belonged to her. And it's uh, very beautiful that uh, that's where Deborah comes into his life. There's uh, a lot to be, there's a lot going on with this movie with father figures and the idea of old school masculinity, like running directly into the face of uh, the kind of new masculinity that that baby represents. Like you see that in every interaction with him and the other criminals. They're always trying to either understand him or directly shut him down because this thing cannot be. No. Like Bats in particular is just pissed off at every single thing Baby does <laughs> because it's, it's just something he doesn't understand. And that's what I, uh, I, what I really found fascinating about the relationship between Buddy and Baby and how that developed with Buddy trying really hard to understand how someone like Baby could exist, and by the end of the movie, just also wanting to destroy him. (laughs) Because Baby wants to get away clean, the thing Buddy was never able to do. And I think it's a... There's something very powerful in the fact that this movie, unlike pretty much any other noir with this premise, manages to not only end on a high note, but end on a movie happy ending yeah oh it, it was just i mean a little frustrating to have to see the character go to jail for five years and all that but it makes perfect sense that they have to punish baby i mean in the beginning of the film he does help all these different crimes that have led to deaths and numerous property damages uh he's destroyed cars and city highway i mean that's inexcusable also stole a jacket he's got to pay <laughs> so no not it, the it jacket makes, it makes sense thematically that he has to go to jail at the, those for, for those five years and pay his debt to society and have some of his hearing taken away for all that he's done wrong in the past. I like that the movie didn't give him a, a free check to be like, well, he's charming, so he shouldn't have to pay for being a criminal. There are no clean getaways. It's, it's basically no country for old men, but with less Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Just to fillet, right, a little bit more. It, it's a very right move. Like, no, baby needs to be punished for at least a little while. Like, it's almost very British in that way. It's like, well, no, love... he needs to go to jail for a little bit. <laughs> well, I love the maturity of that. It's like, yeah. yeah, baby goes to jail for his crimes, and then he gets out and picks his life back up. It's like <laughs> That's like a weird dose of reality to the fairy tale ending. Yeah. yeah, well, it's also great because it allows baby in that moment where he essentially, where he gives himself up, where he's kind of rejecting the 70s Steve McQueen getaway guy and going, I probably need to go to jail. I did some that's shit. That's set up so beautifully in that scene with Doc where he's like, yeah, I hope you two are ready to look behind you for the rest of your life. <laughs> I had such a great scene of uh, Baby just becoming a man, essentially. It does fit, too, with Wright's trend of always ending movies on a slightly bittersweet note. Shaw of the Dead, you have Ed going to live in the shed for the rest of his unnatural life. Uh, but Sean, you know, survives and he moves in with Liz, so that's happy. Hot Fuzz, 
you know, you have the police force back in order, but Nick Frost loses his father. Kind of a bummer for him, even though his father was evil. Uh, world's end. The world literally ends, but everyone's pretty much better off in the apocalypse. Scott, Scott. Pilgrim even has, you know, that end, uh, the relationship ending, but Scott being like, well, I have another chance with Ramona, so that could work out. And then do- Knives dies Tragically. alone in a gutter. Like a piano falls on her from a rope. <laughs> piano filled with heroin. <laughs> so it, it does fit right style. I, I figured we weren't getting a totally happy ending, but the rest of the movie supports having something a little joyful. So I'm glad we got both ways in that end. Although it's very strange that this might be the first right movie to get a sequel. So I don't know if that throws everything out the window that we were just talking about, about this being a happy ending and him having been reformed and learning and paying for his lessons. He has to rescue no-nos and run (laughs) the jewels across America. (laughs) Oh, man. God, just to back up a little bit. That's so bad. We have to talk about supervillain John Hamm. Oh, God, my favorite thing in the world. When this movie just becomes... A slasher movie with cars. And guns. Because Edgar Wright. Kind of just becomes the Terminator in the third act, eventually. Especially with the number of times he gets hit and knocked around. Well, that's just John Hamm. He's invulnerable. He's invincible. Who could hit a haircut like that? He's infused with the power of gosh. God, his haircut is just so uh, amazing in that movie. It's like a character of itself. God, I, I love how John Hamm is the kind of actor... Who can totally sell you on that character and his backstory immediately? <laughs> like, no, I totally believe that this is Don Draper after getting hot, really, really high and becoming a criminal. <laughs> Whose sole motivation is love revenge. I like how, like, the slow burn into him becoming a villain, where it's like, he's fine, he's fine, he's fine, he's fine. Oh, he actually has legitimate reason to want to kill baby now. <laughs> So you just, you act, like, you really buy his heel turn there for him to go full supervillain. And it's so great because he's kind of vaguely been one of the most dangerous characters in the film, but he hasn't been essentially unleashed. So when that moment hits, he just goes full tilt. Undercover psychotic, whereas the rest of the characters are very, you know, uh, open. They, they wear their insanity on their sleeves, so you know to be aware of them. Yeah. Like bats in the greatest Jamie Foxx awkward (laughs) tough guy performance ever. This is actually the sequel to Horrible Bosses One. (laughs) I just, I just love how Edgar Wright knows exactly how you play Jamie Foxx. This is. I keep. I'm going to keep making this joke until people tell me stop. This is actually the sequel to Collateral. He went down a dangerous slope. He was so horrified by Tom Cruise. It's like, no, th- there is no law and order in this world. And Jamie Foxx playing Electro in Baby Driver. It's a very performance. It really is. I, I was just, ha- I was happy to see Jamie Foxx be weird on purpose. It's been a while. <laughs> it was one of my favorite, like, random ass, because ca- everyone must have character things. Bats's weird philosophy, psych up before a heist. <laughs> it's just so strange. You think you'd have to change it slightly because he has that whole, hey, we earn our money, so it belongs to us. Meanwhile, he's just diagnosed John Ham as being a Wall Street guy who got bored of that life. <laughs> like, if anything, he should just rob John Ham. 
<laughs> That's what was going to happen if he didn't die. You got to run the hams. No. Changing the subject completely. I just want to go back <laughs> to the music for just a moment because there's something in this movie that immediately caught my attention in the first few minutes. And I started after a while just keeping a running tab just to make sure this was consistent throughout the movie. And it totally was. I'm obsessed with the fact that when Baby has the earbuds in, the music is part of the soundtrack. If he does not have the earbuds in, Edgar Wright makes goddamn sure the music is coming from a source that you can clearly identify. <laughs> because this movie doesn't ha actually have a soundtrack. Everything is just in the movie. <laughs> and that's freaking brilliant. That like, I can't believe be this something is the first to really movie. bother me. Yeah, if it wasn't that way. That's the technical detail that makes him so excellent. Yeah, I can't believe that this is the first movie to just say, what if the soundtrack was just actual music the characters were listening to, and it behaved via those rules? <laughs> I don't know if they essentially did that in Cloverfield for, like, the three songs they had. That they doesn't count. Kind of did that, actually, in the first Guardians as well, to a degree. I, you have to, yeah, you, I mean, you have to use your imagination for some of it. Some of it, yeah, like when some of it does have, like, establishing, but then it kind of goes off. But yeah. Gunn seemed to be at least attempt to establish that it was coming from somewhere before he, you know, kind of a montage started or something. Right, yeah. Meanwhile, with Baby Driver, that's done with Edgar Wright levels of obsession. <laughs> it's so, everything in, the, everything in Baby Driver is so precise, and even precise for Edgar Wright. This is just all of his synapses clicking into place. I mean, Hot Fuzz is my favorite comedy, like, of all time. Like, it, I don't know what will ever dethrone it, but I have to say, objectively... Uh, arsenic and Old Lace. Shut up, Cody. Objective, objectively, Baby Driver is his best film. And the one that's made me the most excited for what's going to come next. Baby 2, Baby Harder? Baby Driven. He teams up with the driver from Drive. They're arch enemies. Uh, the crossover <laughs> we all want to see. They're on different sides of the country. It's like a math problem. What time will they meet in which state if they're driving at this speed and that speed? They tell me you're the bad guy. Now I just want to see Baby battle every version of Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> Is Baby a replicant? He might as well be. Can they just throw Baby in the background of Blade Runner, just with his old-timey earbuds? Blade Runner who, who is this past man? Blade Runner 2052 will be about Baby Driver in a spinner going after Agent K. <laughs> Folks, this was recorded a couple months before Blade Runner 2049 came out. That You can mark that as gospel. When it comes out true, be amazed that I called that. And I feel like just the Blade Runner score should kick in right there. <laughs> it's just dramatic. Vangelis like, just, <laughs> just dramatic Vangelis just. <laughs> and that's just the end of the podcast. There's that plays and then the recording ends. Sorry, I've got tears and rain in my eyes. And then you let a dove go. and <laughs> I carry those around just for these moments. <laughs> just a sack of doves in case you want to be beautiful. <laughs> You never know, well, everybody. I, die, I want to punctuate one of these points I'm making. <laughs> Cody, it's not beautiful when you do it with your mouth. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, oh, I oh! Every time I've said that. Oh God! Uh, did I mention to you guys the the stylophone? 
Uh, what? You brought up styrofoam. Styrofoam. We've heard it many times. Yes, I'm just so excited. The uh, if our audience remembers the the little sound box I used to make annoying noises on the show occasionally <laughs> was in the film for about three seconds. Baby plays it in his apartment when he's making one of his mixtapes, and it made me so happy. Edgar Wright did that up just for you, Cody. I, I think he did. Cody, I'm I want, blessed. Cody, I want you to know, all because Baby Driver did it, you should not feel vindicated in any way. No, man, that means I got to be doing that stuff all the time. I'm going to start recording you guys and making mixtapes. I would actually like to see that. I, you know what? If you can do it, do it. Mike, can you say, is he slow? No, you can't make me say it. You have to find it. I can't make you say what? Nice try. Damn. This is, this is going to become a thing. I got to get you to say your name backwards, and I got to get you to say, is he slow? No, you're thinking of how we get rid of you, Cody. Oh, no. Back to the fifth dimension I go. Yeah, poof. That's how box office pulp ends. I say my name backwards and just disappear. Yeah, fuck, it turns out I was Rumpelstiltskin all along. Aha! So that seems like a, a satisfying way to close up Baby Driver. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any last-minute comments uh, about the film before we wrap things up, officially? Before we go into, like, 30 more minutes of Blade Runner jokes? Uh, I just want to say my official headcanon is uh, Bats was incorrect. It's actually Darling, who was the coked-up stockbroker, and Buddy was her favorite Chippendale. Uh I buy that. I could definitely see John Hamm playing that. Um, I just want to say my final thought is I have a theory, and that's Baby is made entirely out of sunglasses. <laughs> it's sunglasses all the way down. He's not one of Cody's creations. <laughs> he has no <laughs> eye. Just, <laughs> just sunglasses painted to look like eyes. That's all he's wearing. He's like that fucking Corinthian. You just pull him off, and it's a gaping hole with a smile. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, if it's Ansel Elgort... I'll take him any way he comes. <laughs> Man, the Sandman series got really weird. And on that note. And on that note, uh, if you haven't seen Baby Driver, spoilers. Baby dies at the end. Driver dies at the end. They all die at the end. Except for Kevin Spacey. He's fine, and he watches Monsters, Inc. with his crime nephew, and everyone's happy. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to be fine and watch things with your crime nephew, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, check us out on Stitcher. We have a Twitter at Box Office Pulp. And be sure to check out all the other fine Pulp Podcast Network shows at pulppodcastnetwork.wordpress.com. That's a wrap, everybody. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. Now everyone make car noises with your mouth so people think we're driving away. I'm driving a car. Oh no, I'm on gravel. <laughs> oh no, it's a monster truck on Monday, Monday, Monday. <laughs> and oh, no, it's, it's a clown car. Meep, meep. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, please, please. Put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the comic book community at large that are really never kind of addressed. I think what the three of us really wanted to do was do a show where we explore all of that. And by the very hand of Odin himself... 
We now have <laughs> the seed of this podcast. Marvel's Odin. Does DC have an Odin? They must. I don't, th- I don't think so. Let's go with, like, Image Odin. Look, look, DC has Hercules, so he has to have something. Who doesn't have Hercules? Spawn? He has Angela, who's, like, Lady Hercules. Yeah, she is kind of Hercules-like. Can we still legally say Spawn has Angela? Have I just gotten us in trouble? Well, now that she's as Guardian, I think it's it's fair play, so... Hey, she's not technically as Guardian. Yeah, but she's Asgard's assassin. And she has, like, a weird new haircut. Have you seen Angela's new redesign? Look, we can get all into the pathos of Angela on another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs>